0: I'm Darrell Brugink, and welcome to the 23rd episode of our No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Seeking the Perfect No-Till Picket Fence Stand, Part 1, is being brought to you by TopCon Agriculture. If this is your first time listening, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to TopCon Agriculture for sponsoring today's episode. From planning to precision machine control, Norax boom height control, monitoring and mapping to data management, TopCon Agriculture offers the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit topconpositioning.com backslash growing solutions to learn more about how TopCon agriculture application solutions make agronomy work for you. Over a 40-year career studying no-till, Paul Yassa has become one of the best sources of information in the Midwest on no-till planting equipment and proper placement of seed in the soil. The University of Nebraska Extension engineer will admit that if there is a mistake to be made with no-till, he's either made it himself or has seen it done. Most importantly, he has learned from those mistakes and shares that information with farmers stressing a systems approach and the long-term benefits of continuous no-till. Recognized this past year as one of the 25 living legends of no-till, Paul has been honored as a no-till innovator in research and education through a storied career at the University of Nebraska. In fact, he is synonymous with the phrase picket fence stands, as Paul has studied the workings of no-till planters in placing seed accurately and properly and has researched how seed depth and uniformity of seed spacing is critical to even emergence of corn for the highest yield potential. Today we bring you part one of a two-part podcast series with Paul Yassa, brought to you by TopCon Agriculture. We look back on my recent interview with Paul Yasa, where he not only talks how no-till seeding equipment has changed over the past four decades but describes some of the tenets of a highly functioning continuous no-till system.
1: As a undergraduate student I went through the engineering program learned machine design and I started working with no-till then looking at planter performance, uh, how planters behave, what attachments we need, uh, what features we don't need, things like that. So I established some no-till plots and uh, extension side of it then is I took that out to producers let them learn from what I saw in the field and I learned from them as well now over the time though I found out it was more than just the equipment I found out you had to know a lot about agronomy a lot about crop production a lot about the soil but then that even evolved on more it's going to be more the soil health uh, cover crops uh, things to feed the soil system diversity and so again the engineer in me is uh, looking at the systems approach but uh, become a little bit of an agronomist a little bit of a crop production specialist, but everything else to help the extension program. You've been involved in this equipment, I remember from the beginning, but like you said, it's really
0: evolved out from it. And so this was, you were starting on this uh, even as a a graduate student, it sounds like, and so eventually it led to you being hired full-time at the University
1: of Nebraska? That's true. Uh, In 1978, our ag and equipment industry was a little bit on the downturn, so when I finished my bachelor's degree, I decided to stick around for a master's degree and actually did a uh, planter performance uh, thesis where I looked at 100 different corn planters, about 25 each of uh, grain, sorghum, and soybean planters, looked at what features made them successful, looked at uh, uniformity of depth, looked at uniformity of spacing, did all those measurements, and we started looking at uh, what was a common thread turned out that a lot of the times the planters actually perform better in no-till where it had firm soil. We didn't have slip of the drives on the planters, for instance. And so my master's thesis from 78 to 81 was planter performance in different tillage systems. And That's where I really started to look at planter features. And then I established my plots in 1981 and comparing different tillage systems. And again, looking at uh, the implements, now it turns out managing the system is important.
0: Yeah, and I think for some of our less experienced no-tillers out there who may be listening in today, you know, you often hear guys struggle when they try to make that transition. But what what types of encouragement can you give them to try and get it right no-tilling right from the start? And, you know, what in general terms are maybe some keys to making no-till work, in your opinion?
1: Well, when it comes to no-till, when it comes to our seeders, uh, whether it be a planter or a drill, an air seeder, We've got to remember uh, the first fact is we're going to meter the seed. I don't spend too much time looking at that because producers need to know how to do that anyway, regardless of the tillage system. But I start thinking about four crucial steps. First is going to be cut or handle the residue. The second is going to be penetrate the soil desired seeding depth. Third is establish seed-to-soil contact, and that is separate from closing the seed V. Now, some planters, drills, air seeders do those last two steps as combined in one, but think of them as separate steps. Then I might do steps five, six, seven, eight. It might be a fertilizer, insecticide, herbicide, fungicide. But if I fail on those first five, the metering the seed plus the four crucial no-till, then I'm not going to make it work at all. So what I do is take a look at my seeding equipment. How do I cut and handle residue? Industry has basically gone to disc openers now. The discs are sharp, sharper than any colder on the market. The disc opener is getting thicker gauge steel, such we don't need colders. And we're seeing industry give us the no-till without the colders, especially when it comes to our drills and our air seeders. That second step of penetrate soil desired seeding depth, we're looking at perhaps a little bit of weight or down pressure springs or airbags or hydraulic down pressure to transfer the weight to where we need it. And so we have to have some built-in weight on that frame or added weight. Third step, establish seed-to-soil contact. There's a lot of ways of doing that, but the key is we got to get the moisture into the seed so it swells germinate and we need to get the roots out into the soil. And the fourth of closing the seed, be, again, depends upon the brand, but we want to make sure that seed is covered up, protected. Might be some uh, rodents on the soil surface, might be some insects, might be some uh, herbicide we're spraying. We want to make sure that seed is sealed in the soil such that we don't have uh, those things contacting our seeds. And again, when we take a look at any drill, planter, air seeder out there, we can look at how does it function on those four steps. If i got a problem with one of the steps, look for attachment that helps that problem. Don't look at something that might create another problem in another one of those four steps.
0: Well, that, that's, that's a good summary, Paul. And I know that's something we want to probably circle back on some of these and, and give a little more details here later in our conversation. You were awarded as a no-till innovator in the research and education category. That was back in 98 when the uh, no-till innovator program was really in its infancy. And I know this past year, our 25th Annual National No-Tillage Conference, you were recognized as one of no-till's 25 living legends. You've been studying no-till systems for 40 years, I think. It's been at the Rogers Memorial Farm right outside of Lincoln. How has that research evolved You know, as no-till has progressed? And, and how do you see no-till being perceived today
1: by farmers that you work with versus when you started your research? Well, when we started the research, uh, that was the time that uh, the conservation compliance, the 85 Farm Bill, was out there. And uh, so a lot of the early research was on just residue management, how do we keep more residue out there? that's when I started learning more about uh, the residue is your best friend when it comes to absorbing raindrop impact, when it comes to reducing evaporation, when it comes to uh, reducing erosion. And so we learned to manage the residue. The thing is, is a lot of people were afraid of residue. They saw residue on the soil surface as an enemy. And in a way, I blame grandpa. I blame dad. Back in their day, uh, the sign of a good farmer was cl- cleanly tilled black soil. And if you had uh, some weeds or residue sticking up, you weren't considered a good farmer. So one of the main educational challenges we had is simply tradition. Uh, How do we overcome that? How do we fix that? And as we started studying the the equipment and the benefits of residue, then it became a little easier to talk about no-till. Now, again, back in the 70s, uh, that was our first energy crisis, if you want to call it that, uh, where fuel prices jumped. Everybody says, I'm going to save a bunch of fuel and labor by going to no-till. turns out that's a very small percentage of our inputs for crop production today. It turns out the bigger benefits are, again, absorbing the raindrop impact so they don't detach soil particles so they don't wash away, uh, absorb the raindrop impact so they don't get a crust on the soil surface, uh, reduce the evaporation. And every one of the listeners out there listening to this will sometime during the growing season are going to say, I wish it would rain. I wish we had more water. Well, again, if I keep the water I have, don't till the soil, don't dry it out, then I'm going to get those benefits. So that uh, reduced fuel and labor, yes, it's an immediate benefit. But the longer-term benefit is let's like, build the soil up, build the structure, build uh, a resilient soil system. And again, for a first-timer in no-till, he's still living on a history of tillage of that soil. The tillage has uh, decreased our uh, biological activity in the soil. It's decreased soil structure. The first year, he may not see huge gains. Uh, he may not see any gains at all if he got poorly drained soils. Uh, if we got a dry year uh, further west in the Corn Belt where moisture conservation means more, he's going to see gains the first year. And the thing is, don't get discouraged, because to build soil structure and build biological activity, it takes some time. Some people say three years. Uh, I say closer to five. Uh, lower rainfall areas, narrow crop rotation might take seven. Then once you get past that point, you'll never look back. You're going to wonder why you didn't do it sooner. Are you finding that it's an easier system and message to talk about today than what it was probably 40 years ago? It's true. No-till uh, is a lot easier to, for farmers to accept now, simply because we've got more tools are toolbox, yeah. and the more tools are uh, improved uh, seeders, uh, the air drills, uh, box drills, the planters. Industry's given us the more of that uh, ability to go through that soil, go through the residue and handle it all, and it's simply because uh, industry had to do that, just to stay competitive. Industry had to do that because they're not selling near as many tillage implements, and uh, when a producer looks at it, he may say, boy, that big air seeder's expensive, I can buy an air seeder cheaper than I can buy a big tillage implement and a big tractor to pull the air seeder or pull the tillage implement. So we've got to think, again, about a total system, not just the one piece of equipment, the seeder itself. Yeah, well, it's pretty
0: common that uh, I think one of the arguments you've probably heard through the years, and maybe you've even had these discussions and debates amongst your own colleagues at the University of Nebraska, but a a lot of people just feel like no till is not going to yield. In general terms, what have you found in regards to yield through your studies when you compare no-till versus other tillage systems?
1: In Nebraska, we're definitely blessed with uh, well-drained soils. Uh, That makes a big difference with a well-drained soil compared to poorly-drained soil. uh, That excess soil moisture in the spring sinks into the deeper in the soil profile. We use that later in the season. Uh, On poorly-drained soils, a lot of people use tillage simply to dry the soil out or put in drainage tile to get rid of the excess water. And they did that, and then their plants could take off early in the growing season. Well, if you didn't do that, you had wet soil, the wet soils become a cold soil. It's not the fact that it's no-till that makes it cold, it's the fact that it's water that makes it cold. And so excess water becomes the problem. Uh, the thing is, as we go on in time, the soil structure builds, we soak the water into the soil profile, store it later in the season, then it's not a cold, wet soil at planting time. And again, that's why we need that five years to get going. But when it comes to another one of the main problems was a lack of crop rotation, lack of diversity. There are some producers out there who uh for some reason want to do corn on corn on corn. Perhaps it's a they have a livestock to feed, perhaps uh their today might be the ethanol market. But any time we're doing a monocrop, uh tillage helps reduce some problems simply by breaking up the monocrop itself. You basically have a crop, you have residue, and now you got nothing after the tillage. And that's one thing we need to do when it comes to breaking up insects and disease cycles is to break the cycle. Uh, The monocrop has problems, and tillage is one way to reduce some of those problems. I'd rather use crop rotation and use diversity. When I ask a producer what's their rotation, if they say continuous corn, that's not a rotation. When I ask them if they say corn, soybeans, technically that's not a rotation. That's an oscillation. That's just to the left to the right. A rotation suggests at least three things in your crop system, such that you have... Uh, some years apart from that crop reappearing in that same field. That really does a big difference when it comes to helping take care of insects, diseases, and yields. Because now with the diversity, uh, we don't have the problem that carries over to lower yield next year if you're going to do the same crop over again and then lower it again the next year because you're doing the same crop again. So use the diversity.
0: You've you've done a lot of looks at residue management through the years, and you mentioned this too. I mean, residue in one way it, it can be a, maybe an obstacle or a hindrance to no-tilling, particularly when we think of planting a crop. But I know, you know, the no-tillers, especially the veteran guys out there, really look at residue as a good thing. When you mentioned protecting the soil, for example. So, so looking at residue management, um, and I, I realize you know, your answer to my question could really vary depending on the crop that's being harvested. But let, let's start at what no-tillers should be doing when it comes to managing residue at harvest time, you know, to prepare, say, for no-till corn the following year. Uh, again, it might depend on the crop they're grown, but we think quite often of uh, what we might need to do with corn or what we might need to do with soybeans or possibly even small grains like wheat. What about at harvest time residue management?
1: Well, in my early work, when I was working with planters, I was looking at uniformity of my plant stand. Uh, The longer I've worked with no-tail, I've just thought about uniformity every day of the year when I'm looking at my fields. And that uniformity at harvest time is a uniform spread of residue. I can't have a windrow of chaff here and no chaff there, or I can't have a bunch of residue here that's piled up versus none over here. So, uniformity is spread of the residue and the chaff itself. And again, industry's given us that now by improving the distribution coming out of the back of the combine. In the early days, we set the straw out the back of the combine in a windrow because. That may have been what we're going to bale up for livestock, or it could be we're going to use it for bedding. Again, uh, that residue, I want to leave it out there in the field, so spread the residue. I also like to cut my crop as high as I can when it comes to corn, when it comes to wheat. Uh, Now, soybeans, you have to go down to the ground to get those bottom pods. But again, make sure I spread the pods and the residue out the back of the combine. But again, uniformity, when I look across the field after harvest, I want to have a difficult time telling which way the combine went when you look at the residue itself. Now you're going to see the wheel tracks out there perhaps, but again, a uniform residue cover gives us a far more uniform seedbed for planting into next year. The taller I leave my residue, the longer it's going to hang around. Now that may sound odd to a beginner because he thinks residue is too much out there, but the longer your no-till and the more your biology activity is working for you, the faster the residue breaks down. So I want the residue staying up and not contacting the soil until I'm planting my next crop. Cycle the residue when the next crop is growing. Again, that standing residue also helps. If you're in the Northlands, you get snow, it's gonna catch the snow, hold it in the field. If you're in the Southlands uh, and it gets hot, the standing residue actually casts a shadow for you. Some people might like the mat on the soil surface to keep the soil surface cool. But if you got a mat of residue on the soil surface, then after a rain, there's not gonna be air movement down the soil surface and you're gonna have to stay out of the field an extra day or two after a rain. When it's standing up residue, we got wind blowing down between the residue. And after that rain, I can get back in the field a lot quicker. Then at planting time is when I knock the residue over because that's when I want to protect the soil with the new crops in the ground. So basically at harvest, spread the residue the best you can and leave the stalks as tall as you can. Anything that's standing upright, anchored, and attached, I don't have to worry about it moving when I encounter it with my fertilizer rig, my planter, my drill, my air seeder. Uh, the, being attached, the soil is going to hold it as I pass across it. Being upright, I don't even have to cut it because I'm going to actually go down between the standing stubble. So again, leave it upright, anchored, attached. Good, good stuff. How about now? We're going to move into
0: we're getting to planting time, and, and I know you mentioned you have looked at a lot of planter setups through the years. Um, any what you'd call general recommendations for planter setups to ensure you know good seed placement? And I mean, we're talking. You know, we could be looking at coulters, no coulters, floating or fixed row cleaners, you know, your closing wheel setups, gauge wheel designs. I mean, there's a whole lot of things to, you know, possibly consider here. But what would be some of your general recommendations as you think about planter setups and what what might work
1: best? When it comes to our planters, trying to put the seed in the ground, uh, years ago I developed a little bit of rule. If it creates a problem, take it off. If it plugs up, take it off. Now, it sounds odd, but uh, a colder rolling out in front. Uh, when I first started working with no-till in the late 70s, everyone says you need a colder out front. You run the colder as deep as you run your last tillage pass. You run the colder with some width to it so it tills and loosens the soil. And, whoops, I just said the word tills. That's essentially what a colder was doing, is replacing full-width tillage with narrow tillage in front of the planter unit itself. Those early colders are actually a version of strip-till, just doing that tillage. Uh, the first colders were about 4 inches wide. They dropped to 2 inches wide. Now they're down to about an inch wide or less. And again, when it comes to doing soil disturbance, it pulls up wet soil. Uh, if I got a wet, sticky clay, that wet soil, the colder just pulled up now, just accumulated on my depth gauge was my planter. So at that point, I said, well, let's get rid of the colders. And that's what we did on our research farm back in the 80s. Uh, got rid of the colders, and our planter performance improved because our double-disc opener was sharper than the colder. It could go in there and cut the residue, and it was not running on a loosened soil that was wet and sticky. And so, again, when we start looking at attachments as they come out on the market, uh, in the 90s, residue movers came out. People said, well, move the residue away from the row. It'll make the soil warmer and drier at planting time. Yes, it does. But once I move the residue away at planting time, that residue is gone for the rest of the growing season, and that root zone's going to be warmer and drier the entire growing season. Uh, I don't want to work on making planting time warmer and drier. I want to make the rest of the season cooler and wetter. So we got rid of the residue movers. Uh, in fact, uh, we've got a couple of planters who never even bothered put them on because, again, we want that residue to protect the row. That row's never going to crust or wash out if I've got residue over it. Uh, a lot of people run their residue movers too aggressive, push away all the residue, and then they complain about crusting and replanting. Well, again, it's because they basically have a tilled soil there in that zone where that residue mover ran. Other attachments that show up in the market, the thing I tell producers is look at who invented that attachment what problem did he have? How does that attachment help solve the problem? And do you have that same problem? And for instance, I don't run colders, but I don't have a stony soil. Maybe I have a, a producer who's out there listening who's got a lot of rocks. So maybe a colder is a good little package on the planter just to push the rocks out of the way from the opener to protect his discs. Uh, likewise, a residue mover, uh, for me, uh, if I push the residue out at planting time, I don't have it the rest of the season, But worse than that, the wind blows in Nebraska, blows some of the residue back over the row, not all of it. So, in one place, I might have seed under residue, cool and wet. Another place, seed with nothing on top of it, warm and dry, and comes up a lot quicker there, but slower where it was covered. Now I got a non uniform stand. And so, again, a residue mover might be a benefit if I need to make the residue distribution more uniform in the field. Say I didn't take time back and set in the combine properly to spread residue, and I got non uniform residue. Maybe a residue mover is a quick fix to help make it more uniform for planting. At least I can push away the big piles of residue. And with that in mind, I like the floating residue movers that have depth bands on them. That way you can set them such that they don't move soil, just move the surface residue. The depth band helps prevent it from gouging in if you're going over uneven soil surfaces. And on our research planters that are university farms, we do have the floating residue movers for the researchers who want to move residue. But on our Rogers Memorial Farm where I do most of my work, we don't even have residue movers. We just go straight in. Now, when it comes to other attachments, again, what were they invented for? Uh, Something like a seed firmer to push the seed down, get good seed-to-soil contact. Uh, I like that when it comes to uniform seeding depth. When it comes to uh, the press wheels in back on the planter, it depends upon the brand you have. But a lot of people were looking at uh, spoked wheels to give you some tilled and loosened soil. Oops, I said the word tilled again. But that tilled soil actually gives you a soil that's going to stay over the seed V compared to if you squeeze a wet soil together with the standard tires, when the soil dries and shrinks, that seed V may open back up. That tilled loosened soil from the spoke cleaner might stay closed. So again, we got to think about what conditions were those attachments invented for. Do you have those problems?
0: We'll get back to Paul in just a minute. But I wanted to take a moment to again thank our sponsor Topcon Agriculture for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. From planning to precision machine control, Norax boom height control, monitoring and mapping to data management, Topcon Agriculture offers the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit TopConPositioning.com backslash growing solutions to learn more about how TopCon Agriculture application solutions make agronomy work for you. I found it interesting that Paul says farmers switching to no-till may find it takes three to five years before the soil biological engine begins to work efficiently and effectively. And What does he encourage no-tillers do to speed up the process? Crop rotation and diversity of residue from at least three different crops or the addition of cover crops is a major component, Paul says, meaning the typical corn-soybean rotation of the Midwest just doesn't cut it to establishing a highly functioning no-till system. Paul also stresses simplicity with no-till planters. He talks about his rule that if something causes a problem, take it off. He recommends that farmers strongly consider removing coulters so they don't move dirt and pull up wet sticky soils that can disrupt proper seed placement. He'll even run planters without residue managers or perhaps use floating row cleaners because he wants to keep as much of the residue in the row area as possible to hold in moisture and keep the soil cooler for better plant development over the entire growing season. Let's continue our visit with Paul Yassa and hear his recommendations And where to locate the new crop row in relation to the old crop row. And toward the end of today's podcast episode, Paul will get into the value of using cover crops to manage the old crop residue and rev up the soil biology. Talking about location of a corn row, and you know, get into corn and where you're gonna place that corn. Does it matter where you no-till your new corn row in relation to the old crop row? And, and, uh, you know, this is often talked about in corn-on-corn situations, but, um, you know, you'll see a lot of growers probably splitting those old 30-inch rows right down the middle. Uh, But I hear others talking about wanting to plant maybe as close as they can to that old row as possible.
1: What What are your thoughts on location of the corn row? When it comes to location, where to put this year's seed, I think about where in the soil last year was my most biologically active area. Where did I drive in the field last year? To me, uh, planting between the old rows is one of the worst places to plant because I'm going to have a couple rows on my planter now going into the wheel tracks from last year, the most compacted area in the field. I'm going to have some other rows going into soft rows that haven't been driven on since who knows when. That's, again, not uniform from uh, row... To row. Uh, I like the uniformity, again, every day of the year when I look at the field. So when it comes to corn on corn, I like planting as close to as possible to the old row. That's going to avoid the wheel tracks because I didn't drive there. And it's also going to get my new seedlings next to the most biogenic active area in the field from last year. That's where the roots were. That's where the microbes are that's cycling the nutrients from last year's roots to make them available for this year's roots. And so planting as close to possible for corn on corn simply because uniformity of depth control, uniformity of emergence is so critical for corn. Now once I'm in a crop rotation, uh, in our Rogers Memorial Farm, I use uh, grain sorghum and soybeans. And I, with the rotation, I'm going to plant right down the old row. By planting down the old row, I know I'm in the most biologically active area in the field. I know that residue there from last year is going to protect that row from crusting or washing out. And so again, for the, Long-term, down the old row with crop rotation diversity is the way to go. Beside the old row, uh, if I'm doing the corn on corn, another advantage of going beside the old row or down the old row is I really save wear and tear on my tractor tires. A lot of people, when they're planting between the rows, you are driving on last year's residue. Those stalks are sharp. You start chewing up tractor tires real fast. Well, a lot of people say, no problem, I can buy a stalk stomper. I can spend some money to create... To fix a problem that I created, wait a minute. A lot of times I tell producers, think about that. Before you spend money, why? Well, if it's because the tires are wearing out, well, when we drive between the old rows, plant on the old row, our tires last because we're not driving on that sharp residue. So, again, we think about that. But the plant beside the old corn row for corn on corn, we had some producers in Nebraska even put narrow depth gauge wheels on their planter so they can even get closer yet to the row. Again, to get away from wheel tracks and to get closer to the biological active area in the field. That narrow depth gauge wheel is typically sold for the air seeders or drills, but it'll fit on a planter as well. So again, think about soil biology. Think about not planting in the compaction of the wheel track. When it comes to you know trying to get a
0: uniform crop next year and we talk about residue and uh, sometimes, you know, there's been talk about do we want to re, remove any of the corn, you know, let's say it's corn on corn we're doing or, you know, any anything, but we've got a lot of residue out in that field. Is there any reason why we might want to remove some of that residue? Because sometimes we hear, you know, they could be used uh, to generate income. Um, but is there is there any reason why we would want to perhaps remove some of that residue uh, prior to the, the coming year?
1: When it comes to residue removal in the field, uh, we have a lot of irrigated corn in Nebraska. We have a lot of heavy residues out there, uh, whatever your definition of heavy is. We got a lot of producers who are afraid of the residue. We got a lot of producers saying, well, I can bail off some of that corn stalks, haul it away, uh, feed it to livestock. If you're going to feed it to livestock yourself, uh, the livestock have legs. Bring the livestock to the field. Let them graze in the field. The advantage of doing that is the nutrients that is in the residue, if you haul it away, It's in the manure in the yard, and you need to haul it back to the field. If you let the cattle come and graze it directly in the field, they're going to leave the feces and urine behind, they're going to leave the nutrients behind, about 80-85% of it behind. And so it's going to help me on my fertilizer bill. Worse yet, when we haul it away, though, we're hauling away carbon. And when it comes to our soils, organic matter is what really makes soils tick. Uh, That comes from carbon from the growing plants. If we're hauling away our carbon, we're going to start depleting our organic matter in our soil. And so we want to keep as much as we can in the field. Now, when it does come to the income stream, uh, I made a comment one time that I have uh, experiences in Nebraska that I, I could sell my corn residue at uh, maybe 100 hundred, two hundred $200 a ton. I could sell my corn residue because that's how much extra I'm going to have to spend on irrigation to replace the water because of evaporation, not because I don't have a cover. So how much extra I'm going to have to spend because of uh, more nutrients because I'm hauling away some nutrients when I to haul away the residue. I had a producer come up to me and he says, even at $200 a ton, he wouldn't part with his residue. It's too valuable for him when you're in dry conditions. Now, in wet conditions, people think, well, I can go ahead and part with some. Uh, in the first couple of years of no-till, you might. Uh, when you've been no-till for oh, as long as I have and your soil's is active uh, biologically, you don't have any residue to spare. I've gone some of my fields that uh, they're almost bare the next spring simply because soil biology's eating eaten everything up. And that's where I'm looking now at cover crops to even grow more residue. I'm looking at cover crops to have a living root to feed those soil microbes and have them uh, live on the cover crop rather than eating up all my residue. And so, again, it depends on where you're at in the no-till spectrum. If you're just a new beginner, sure excel a little bit, make you feel a little better by decreasing what's out there. But realize that you're going to have to increase some of your inputs uh, to replace the nutrients, to replace the water that's lost to evaporation. Uh, The worst case is to remove too much residue and even have erosion and crusting problems. So, again, residue is your friend. Leave it in the field. Yeah. You just mentioned cover crops
0: here, and that's a good bridge to my next question. Cover crops have been around forever. I mean, No-Till farmers has been covering it probably as long as you've been at uh, University of Nebraska. We see today 77% of our readers we know are using cover crops to some extent. So it's really exploded, exploded in the last 10 years. And it's probably been a really good thing for our crop rotations, uh, that diversity that you talked about wanting to have. But it does bring into another level, perhaps, of residue management. So any research you've done recently on cover cropping or you know, opinions you can offer on, on how how cover crops are changing our no-till planting habits and, and from when it comes to managing residue,
1: what, what have you seen there? Well, when it comes to cover crops, uh, you're right. It's a sort of coming back. It used to be a vogue in the past. And when I say that is uh, one of the statements I make once in a while, it says my dad was an organic producer. And people look at me and say, well, how did you get to be a no-tiller then? I says, well, my dad was started farming before fertilizers were commercially available, before uh, pesticides that we have, the herbicides, insecticides, fungicides were available. And so everything we were doing back then was with rotation, with diversity, with growing some uh, cover crop uh, as a legume for fixing nitrogen for my corn crop, for instance. Sort of we're making a giant circle coming back to feeding that soil system like our grandparents did, by having crop rotation and diversity. When those products were commercially available, uh, buy some fertilizer, buy some pesticides, it, in a way it made us lazy farmers. Uh, some people are thinking it was making us more efficient, but when we did, we started ignoring the natural system in the soil. And that's where a lot of the people who are using no-till now and using cover crops now are looking at trying to get back to nature. Nature had a living root in the soil uh, year-round. Now, it might have gone dormant in the wintertime, but our grandparents, when they came over here and tilled the soil, they grew a crop, take corn, for instance, you plant it in late April and it grows in May, June, July, August, matures in September. you get got a living root only about five months a year. That living root feeds the soil system then, but uh, would you want to eat only five months a year and then starve the next seven? Uh, that's what we're doing to our soil. We don't have a living root there, and that's what cover crops are doing for us, is feeding that soil system. Now, going back to residue, uh, a lot of our listeners out there would think about residue as a uh, bad want to get rid of it. Uh, industry sort of responded by coming up with vertical tillage, uh, running some colders or disc blades or something uh, fairly shallow, but a fairly shallow angle as well. They say the residue is, we cut and size the residue with that vertical tillage tool. Well, I find my drill does the same thing. They say the vertical tillage tool puts the residue in contact with the soil so the soil microbes can break it down. Well, my drill does the same thing with the drill openers themselves. But my drill has the advantage. It puts a living seed into the soil to get a living root in the soil to feed the soil system even more yet. And so when it comes to residue management, I tell some producers, drill a cover crop. Use an air seeder. That'll cut and size the residue. It'll put it in contact with the soil just like tillage did. But again, I get the living root there to feed the system so my residue breaks down and cycles faster for me. Now, yes, it does cycle the existing residue from the crop, but I'm replacing that with the residue I'm growing from my cover crop. And so I'm actually getting that living root in the soil system year round or close to year round, like Mother Nature had, so I can build organic matter and add some more residue if I need it. Any observations
0: as far as, you know, planting a corn crop, no tilling a corn crop the following spring into a a stand of cover crop that, you know, we got producers. It's still alive. Some of them have killed it, and it's starting to, to break down, desiccate. But anything that you've seen that, um, in general terms, that would be helpful uh, to, to working with that residue when you're trying to get that cash crop in the ground?
1: When it comes to our covers, uh, it depends a lot on what we're using for biological diversity. Uh, one of the cheapest and quickest covers, real popular out there, is cereal rye. Uh, it grows almost anywhere. You can see it at almost any time of the year. It just takes a little bit to get it started, and it can grow pretty fast if the temperature and moisture is right. And so it does provide a lot of residue cover in a hurry. Unfortunately, a lot of times that surprises producers in the spring. They might see the field uh, one week and uh, the rises only six inches tall, and come back a week later and it's a foot and a half tall, and come back a week later six foot tall. Well, it doesn't <laughs> quite grow that fast, but it's close. Now, in Nebraska, I fear that because by the time I've grown that much biomass, it's used a lot of water out of my soil profile. So I don't want to do that. Now, we got some listeners in the poorly drained areas of the eastern Corn Belt that say, I need to get rid of that excess water because the soil is too wet. They let that cover go ahead and grow. Well, uh, sero rye, for instance, is a cool season grass. Corn is a warm season grass. Well, the microbes to break down that residue need some nitrogen to feed the microbe to break down that high carbon residue. They're going to steal that nitrogen basically from our corn crop for buying corn into that it's much safer to plant soybeans into that cereal rye because the soybeans can make their own nitrogen. They don't need to worry about the microbes stealing what they need to digest the residue. Now, the good news is that's basically a time-released form of nitrogen. The residue, when it breaks down, that's going to be released back in our system. But if our seedling corn is out there and it's nitrogen deficient when it's short, it's going to not develop as good a ear. We're going to really hurt ourselves on yield potential. And so the key advice to producers is when you're planting into cereal rye with corn, boost starter nitrogen in your planter, uh, 30 to 50 pounds indexed right there to the row. Don't spread 50 pounds across the top of the entire soil surface because all you did there was feed the microbes and tie it up. You're not going to have it available to the row. But we're going to see a lot more nitrogen starter on our planters when we're planting into that cereal rye residue. Now, for me, I'm trying to feed the soil system, I'm spraying my cereal rye out uh, perhaps two, three weeks ahead of planting. At that point, there's not much biomass there for the microbes to tie up the nitrogen. There's not much biomass produced. But again, I fed the soil system is what I'm after. And so there, I don't need to boost my starter nitrogen near as much. I just go with a more of a well-balanced starter program like 1034-0 or something like that. But again, index to the row. Most people have problems with what I call peaked or puny corn when they're planting into the cover crops. They're the ones who are surface supplying their nitrogen, spraying across the entire soil surface. Yes, I expect some nitrogen tie-up, but just like we learned many years ago, if we have diversity, we're planting our corn into a legume, for instance. People talk about legume credit uh, of perhaps 45, 50 pounds, uh, nitrogen credit from soybeans, for instance. Well, in reality, it was a nitrogen penalty for corn on corn we have to apply 45 to 50 pounds more for corn on corn with corn going into a cereal rye cover crop is the grass into the grass again there's a nitrogen penalty there we're going to have to apply more nitrogen just because of that carbon of the residue itself so my quick answer is increase your starter fertilizer if you're really concerned kill your rye earlier if you're really concerned don't plant cereal rye in front of corn put a legume in front of the corner, put something else in front of the corner to fix some nitrogen and not have as high a carbon residue. So again, it depends a little bit on our diversity and what species we select for our covers. Thanks again to Paul Yassa for sharing
0: what he's discovered from 40 years of no-till planting research at the University of Nebraska and offering some fascinating observations in part one of this two-part podcast. And thanks to TopCon Agriculture for making this podcast series possible. We'll launch part two of our visit with Paul Yassa on Friday, August 25th. If you enjoyed learning about Paul's opinions on No-Till, you might want to visit the No-Till Farmer website at notillfarmer.com. Just use the search function at the top of the homepage and type in Paul Yassa. Yassa is spelled JASA. That search will reveal numerous stories throughout the years in which Paul's opinions were shared. Also, consider joining us for the 26th annual National No-Tillage Conference. The 2018 event is taking place for the first time in Louisville, Kentucky from January 9th through the 12th with 37 speaker presentations and 80 roundtable discussions to choose from. Register by August 31st to save $85. For more information, or to register, visit notillconference.com. Again, thanks to our sponsor TopCon Agriculture for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page and on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R. For Paul Yassa, TopCon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm executive editor Daryl Brugank. Thanks for listening.